1: Berry Chantilly Cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, professor of history at Brookdale Community College. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Michelle J. Mano, titled Denied: Women, Sports, and the Contradictions of Identity. Published by New York University Press. Dr. Mano is a sociologist and the assistant provost for diversity and inclusion in the Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion at Northwestern University. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you,
0: Jane. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, why the title Denied?
0: Denied is a play on words. Um, On the one hand, it's a basketball reference in particular. So to be denied in the basketball context is typically uh, when uh, a player has their shot blocked. Um, And so when I was working with my editor on the title, um, she actually suggested denied and immediately I was taken aback to kind of late '90s, early 2000s sports announcers, um, you know, saying "denied," um, and it it got me excited. Um, so I think that was that was very cool. It was it was nice to be able to tie it to basketball. The other meaning, of course, um, as it relates to the book, is that uh, "denied." I think is is a really interesting way to think about. Um, how the women athletes that I talk about in the book were denied the ability in a lot of ways to be their full selves in this context. Um, The book is ultimately about all the ways that these athletes are navigating tensions around various aspects of their identities and specifically gender, race, sexuality, and how uh, they were always a little bit too much or a little bit not enough. Um, and again, uh, denied the opportunity, I think, to to show up in that space as uh, their full authentic selves. So the title does, I think, both of those things uh, in an interesting way.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a great play on words. So why are sports important for understanding identity?
0: So sport, like any social institution, uh, I think is an opportunity for us to Uh, both understand how these spaces give people opportunity and how also we can um, inadvertently reproduce inequity. And I think one of the most interesting things for me about looking at the institution of sport is looking at how these larger structures can influence individuals' everyday lives. And in particular, um, how they can shape our experiences of our identities. And so that's what I was really interested in when I was thinking about studying this institution of sport. Um, You know, when it comes to identity, especially for women athletes in sport, we're talking about an institution that wasn't made with them in mind. right? Uh, And we can think about the whole history of women attempting to gain access to sport. Um, And uh, so for me, this was really kind of perfect uh, space in which to really explore um, well, what does it look like for women to, to be operating in this institution that, um, you know, kind of inherently was constructed outside of, of that realm? And then think about what about all the other identities? So one of the things I do in the book is, is to really try to bring an intersectional lens to uh, these athletes experiences. So talking, of course, about gender, Um, but also thinking about the other identities that are inevitably connected. And and I talk most specifically about sexuality and race in that way. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about male athletes too, while I was reading this and thinking, you know, I really feel, I, I suspect I should say that male athletes don't really have the same kind of tension that female athletes or, um, you know cisgender and and lesbian athletes have and it's um it it kept kind of coming you know the yeah. uh, ideas that I hope we'll kind of dig into here too about you know being a a male college athlete and being the big man on campus and you know sort of having like being like the the prince in a sense <laughs> and whereas you know I don't know if the the women that you studied here have that same kind of feeling of, of fame or accolades or, you know, feeling so good about what they're doing, you know, it seems like there's definitely, uh, you know, some difference
0: there, you know. I think there's big differences. And, you know, to, to speak to the first point you made, uh, you know, I think men experience different sets of tensions for sure. And, and of course, all of this Uh, depends on the sport itself. So we could talk about the really different contexts of sport and how that matters, and I'm happy to dig into that of of why basketball, for example. Um, But I think, yeah, at a very basic level, uh, men don't experience the kinds of tensions that I'm talking about, particularly around gender, um, because the characteristics that we associate with athleticism, aggression, competitiveness, strength, right, muscle mass, um, those are characteristics that define masculinity. Um, and so there's more of that inherent alignment between men who play sports and what we think of when we think of athletes whereas for women they're really butting up against these kind of long-standing um, associations and expectations and characteristics that don't align with femininity right we think about and again, this is traditional notions of femininity passivity deference, smallness, right? Um, and so just to show up in a sporting context and to to, to be an athlete is to be pushing that boundary already. Um, and then right when we factor in gender presentation and body size and all these other things, I mean, we start kind of layering on and the picture becomes pretty complex. It's sweating. <laughs> sweating. Exactly. Like very basic. Exactly. Like, like the very basic elements of Um, athleticism, right, are just so deeply, intimately connected to what we think of when we think of masculinity. And we've certainly made progress, right? I think we've expanded our um, acceptance around um, what is okay for women and women athletes. I mean, we have evidence of this all around, and it's incredible. And yet, I still think that we, there's a ceiling on that, Um, that, you know, and, and that's essentially what I'm talking about a lot in this book is especially when you think about the intersections of these identities. These athletes are continually butting up against constraints that want to kind of hem them in to uh, a particular way of being that, uh, you know, again, like I said, doesn't allow them to really be their full selves.
1: Right. So you spent an entire season with an NCAA basketball team researching this book. So what was that experience like? it was incredible
0: uh it it was so many things so so it was incredible i think first and foremost uh the thing i reflect the most on is uh, just what an opportunity it was for me to have to to be able to do that to be able to be accepted uh, as a part of the team so i worked as the team's manager uh for the season um and you know i got to spend every single day with them for nine months (laughs) um and so it was really uh, an amazing opportunity to be able to to really become a part of the team, to be let into spaces that were were private. Uh, that was really special. It was also really challenging. So I think anyone who's done ethnographic research will know this. Um, to be immersed in the field, as they say, um, is also really difficult in a lot of ways. It's exhausting. The days are long. Um, you know, I spent a lot of uh, a lot of late nights doing laundry, kind of wondering what, what was it I was doing here exactly, um, and I, and I would say there's also an element of challenge for me having been an athlete myself. Um, one of the biggest challenges I had early on when I was with the team is needing to. Um, really take a step back as if I didn't understand the context. So it's sort of the, the fish in water metaphor, right? I had grown up playing sports. I, I was an athlete in college. I sort of took for granted a lot of what I was observing as just the way things were. And so I did have to do a lot of reminding myself that I'm only going to be able to do justice to this experience if I can actually remove myself and look at what was happening through a new lens, as if I didn't understand it. That would get me to ask the more complicated questions, um, a- rather than again just assuming that everybody's going to understand that this is sort of how it works. Um, so that was tricky for me. Um, and then the other the other thing I'll say is that um, you know access was this sort of interesting constant issue as I was with the team. So um, and I talk about this in, in the appendix. I talk more specifically about the methodology of the book. but um, you know, as many of these teams, uh, elite level Division one team, they were very um, rightfully, I think, very concerned about protecting the identities of their athletes, about protecting the team itself. Um, and so there were some spaces that I wanted to have access to. Uh, For example, going to class with the players, right? Um, But I couldn't because NCAA regulations um, also have all kinds of rules around, you know, what help players can get and that sort of thing. And so that was also methodologically tricky, right? So I was was allowed to do a lot of things and then I wasn't allowed to do other things. And so um, I talk talk about that in the appendix, uh, but I think if I think about the experience it's an interesting kind of part of the story. Um, yeah, but overall, know? it was fantastic.
1: Did they know you were writing a
0: book? So they did. So they knew I was doing research. Um, so it was very important for me um, to be very candid about that from the beginning. So I was introduced as somebody who was, of course, there to, to be a part of the team and to help the team, but also who was studying um, the experience of, of women athletes. Um, and, you know, like uh, any kind of long ethnographic field work, I had to sort of remind players from time to time, um, you know, that I was doing research because I think it's, it's very easy for them to get used to me me as, you know, just a part of the team and sort of forget. So every now and then I would sort of say that, like, and, you know, you know I'm, I'm doing the study and, and I'm curious about this thing. And so my informal interviewing in that way, I think was helpful. Um, and then there were times where I think the players in particular reminded me. So they would like, you know, pop over to me during a practice and be like, did you notice anything interesting today? Or, you know, what did you write down? And and so they were aware, um, I think, and they were curious uh, about what I was doing, too.
1: That's great. You know, you wonder, too, yes, um, how have you gotten any feedback from them about the book after the publication or have they have they been have you had that ability to kind of follow up with them at
0: all since so I I did receive a note from one of the players, which I was quite surprised by, um, who, who came across the book. I didn't send it out, um, but who came across the book on her own and, and sort of wrote to me and just said, you know, uh, this is really interesting to see and I'm I'm looking forward to digging in and I had made a couple references that uh that I think were kind of perhaps funny to her. Um and yeah, so so I hope, you know, my hope is that uh at the end of the day, my hope is that if the players do or the coaches or anyone involved in the book, if they do end up reading it, that they feel like I represented them well um, and in a way that they would feel was uh, perhaps most accurate to their experience. Um, So, you know, that's always, I think, a a bit of a Uh, Uncertainty, right? When you're writing, when you're when you're digging deep into people's lives and then representing them in a work like this, there's always a little uncertainty. But that's my hope.
1: Well, that's great. It was it's amazing that you got that access.
0: You know that you had that opportunity to do it. It is. Yeah, it is.
1: Fantastic. So, you know, you talk a lot about the players, uh, and you talk a lot about the coaches and how the coaches treated the players, and you know, the way coaches try to motivate their players, yelling at players and things like that. But sometimes they yelled at them for not their play, you
0: mm-hmm. know, um,
1: calling them and also calling them names like, you know, let and things like <laughs> that. Can you comment on that a little bit?
0: Absolutely. Um, so I think it's and, and this is one of those things uh, that when I was talking about needing to sort of step back and see through a different lens, this was certainly one of those times. Uh, I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people who have played sports, um, this kind of coaching style may be familiar, Um, the sort of aggressive, uh, what you might actually call abusive, uh, verbally abusive behavior um, is a sort of natural part of a lot of uh, what people experience in sports. Um, And so, you know, at first, I didn't really think anything of it, to be honest. And then um, the more time I spent, and and again, the more effort I put into trying to remove myself from that experience, I was able to see uh, not only, of course, this is quite problematic in and of itself as a motivational tool, because we also know that it actually doesn't work. (laughs) So uh, players, there's interesting research on this, right? The players are actually more motivated when they're uh, engaged with positively, which um, I think is important. Um, But there's also something else going on here. Uh, So to your question specifically, what I noticed, and this is specifically from the head coach, um, was that in an effort to motivate her players, she would choose words or choose phrases that were fundamentally about the denigration of femininity. So any sort of uh, behavior or um, appearance of femininity was used as an opportunity to demonstrate to the players that they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing as athletes. Um, so she would say things like, "You know, I need ballers. I don't need nice girls, right?" Or um, the 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 opening chapter, I, I use this phrase where she says, "You know, we should get you skirts instead of shorts." So she's 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 drawing on all these kind of feminine gendered signifiers as evidence. Uh, that our team is not doing well. Right. They're not tough enough. Um, and so it's really it was interesting for me about that. It was it was so creating a context in which these women athletes are being uh, told you know, they need to be this certain kind of way. Right. Uh, nasty. Right. They need to be tough um, on the court. Um, And yet we know that when they leave court, (laughs) the court, society is going to expect other things of them, right? So for me, what was so kind of interesting about um, that method was that it was really putting those two identities in contrast with one another. Um, But... um, Butting them up against one another in a way that I think, you know, fundamentally leaves the players in this really sort of impossible situation. Right. So you can't don't be your full self. Right. Um, be this way in this context and then make sure you switch and you're, you're another way in the other another context.
1: Yeah, it's, it was a really interesting uh realization. I kind of want to ask you, you said that you kind of thought at the beginning that this was just normal coach kind of coach behavior. Is that because of your own experience as an athlete?
0: That certainly mirrors my experience as an athlete. And, And luckily I think that that's changed. And I think that, um, recently we've seen a real reckoning with that sort of behavior in sports, um, from coaches in particular. Uh, but certainly, you know, I, uh, I grew up at a time in which um, it was very common and and this is, you know, my experience of of coaches I think from the time I was, you know, I started playing basketball when I was eight. (laughs) So I would say middle school through my college experience, certainly not all, but a lot of my coaches did use similar tactics. Um, yelling, screaming, throwing things, um, right, uh, those were very common, very sort of standard ways of coaching. I mean, the the classic sort of example in pop culture is, is the sort of Bobby Knight style, right, of coaching, um, which, of course, is, is deeply problematic. Uh, and like I said, doesn't actually work very well. Um, but yeah, that was, um, that was, unfortunately, a, a part of my experience
1: right yeah so you know it, it's it's very interesting so you're examining this team and then you kind of get a chance to reflect on on the whole idea of what it feels like to be an athlete and to recall like what was it like when i was you know on, exactly as playing myself so i think it's uh, it's a uh, very interesting the way we talk to people the way we try to motivate people and um it's generational too uh yep you know, the way People behave, you know, the, the way that coaches and teachers interact with students and athletes to to motivate them. And uh, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I actually have to say when I read the section about the coach and what the coach was yelling at the players, it was it was upsetting to me. <laughs> like I was upset for them. And uh, I felt a lot of uh, sadness, you know, that this was going to be their their uh, their experience as scholar athletes was you know that they they're gonna feel bad about themselves right they're that this doesn't feel good to be yelled at like that uh so yeah I, oh yeah i had a very strong reaction to it uh, yeah when i read it you also yeah. read about uh lesbian stereotyping and called well, dyke discourse and i thought mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about that
0: yeah, of course. So um the Dyke discourse, that sort of terminology is is a sort of borrowing from the work of CJ Pasco, um, who talks about the Fag Discourse. So so CJ Pascoe's book on um understanding how how young boys in particular use um calling each other fag as a way to police gender, essentially. And so um when i was writing this book and i was i was thinking very deeply about lesbian stereotyping of women athletes in general which is something that scholars have been writing about for decades i mean from the earliest time <laughs> women attempted to play sports uh, there was a sort of immediate uh, association of uh, lesbianism and of course that's attached to right these ideas around gender that um to be masculine right is to be Uh, lesbian so it's this conflation i think with gender and sexuality that has existed in women's sports forever Um, and so i i was curious about that Um, and so i wanted to ask the players about that where i use the term dyke discourse is is because i think there was this interesting way in which that lesbian stereotyping was being used again to police the athletes um, gender presentations in particular but also to actually police their sexuality And this happened in kind of two primary ways. I mean, the first is, without fail, uh, when I would ask anyone I talk to for this book, do you think there are stereotypes about women athletes um, and kind of what are they? Uh, Inevitably, they would say a variation of, if you play basketball, you're gay. Mm. That's it. Full stop. (laughs) It was the first one that came to mind for every single person that I talked mm-hmm. to. Um, and that and that tracks with the research. Um, so sport type really matters when it comes to perceptions of women athletes as lesbians. So contact and team sports like basketball, again, because they're perceived to be more masculine, tend to have that stereotype attached to them, uh, which is not the case for other sports, more individualized sports or more kind of feminine sports, gymnastics, for example, um, cheerleading, volleyball, those, those sorts of things. Um, but the second part of the dyke discourse that I found more interesting and in some ways more troubling is that it was both, if you play basketball, you're gay. And if you're not gay, you'll get turned out. So this idea that as a result of merely participating in the sport <laughs> and or being around other queer athletes, then you would in fact be susceptible to being turned so it was this kind of notion of lesbian contagion is, is how I sort of talk about it in the book, that associations with other queer players, or again, with the sort of masculinizing effect of sport participation, that players would be kind of more likely to then themselves, uh, quote unquote, be turned gay. And the way that this happened, um, that the, the players talked about it, and this came from um, parents, so from families, from friends, uh, from all kinds of people, this policing was happening. And it was often done through uh, joking, I'm joking in air quotes here. Um, so a sort of lighthearted, like, oh, you better be careful, you know, don't spend too much time with your teammates, they might turn you, right? This sort of, or, or oh, I wanted to make sure I came to the game to, to make sure you weren't, you know, uh, looking to uh, Butch, for example, right? So All these sorts of ways that the players were experiencing external pressure to um, to sort of prove through gender presentation that they weren't lesbians. Um, And so
1: these are something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's something. Yeah. That's like a like a. Exactly. Oh, God
0: yeah and it's interesting right as a sociologist and somebody who you know believes that something like sexuality is socially constructed and and we're not necessarily born uh with this sort of essential characteristic right then certainly it's true that our our exposure in some ways right being um uh exposed to many ways of being could lead to somebody uh saying like oh huh this is interesting you know maybe i do right uh people People's identities evolve and change over time, right? Um, but I think for me, what's problematic is the, the assumption that there's something about that context that um, would would sort of turn in the way you're talking about in a negative way, right? Not that like, oh, it's interesting how perhaps being around other queer people might lead someone to say, huh, maybe I'm queer myself, right? And that sort of inter- introspective questioning, it, it was not that way. It was, was more of a... Yes, not self-discovery. It was more of this is a bad thing and you better be careful that it doesn't happen to you. And so a lot of the players, um, even though they were expressed frustration with having to deal with this, they sort of were so used to it that they were like, "Ah, yeah, it's just sort of a part of what it means to be an athlete. I will say there were um, unfortunately a smaller amount, but there were a few players who said to me, yeah, this happens and I don't care because there's nothing wrong with being gay. So somebody could think that about me. Somebody could, you know, have whatever stereotypes they want. And like, that's fine because it's okay. Um, And so my hope is that we have more of that over time. um, Because then I think that would sort of neutralizes uh, the negative impact of, of stereotypes. But that wasn't where everybody was at at the moment.
1: And I think you mentioned in the book too about uh, some of the players being criticized for the way, you know, that they weren't dressed. Uh, Was it something about lip gloss or putting makeup on?
0: Yeah. So the kind of policing of gender expression happened in a few ways, and I think specifics to kind of lesbian stereotyping. I think one of the the things that has sort of plagued women's sports for a long time is this idea of negative recruiting. And negative recruiting by using um, the existence of queer players or coaches, or again, the fear of that um, to dissuade recruits from going to particular teams. Um, and so one of the things that happened uh, with this team and with the players is that they they did experience a lot of policing around um, when recruits were coming, coaches saying to them, look, it's okay that you're gay, but you need to tone it down. So you need to make sure you're not wearing any men's clothes. You're not wearing any backwards baseball caps. You're not, certainly not having girlfriends around or talking about girlfriends, right? So this very explicit regulation of their identities in that way. And so you can imagine for the players who um, were queer, who were more masculine presenting in their gender presentation, this was like a, a very clear message of you cannot show up in this space as who you are right? Because we're afraid that that's going to send a message to these recruits that's negative and it's going to keep them from coming here. Um, And so, yeah, there were certainly those ways. Um, And then there were all these kind of other ways that uh, this policing had an effect. So I talk about this as gender strategies in the book, um, which a lot of players were doing themselves. So I would ask, you know, is there anything that you do to navigate this tension you might feel between being athletic and being appropriately feminine and they would describe to me um you know putting on makeup before games making sure that they had shaved their legs and their armpits um things like that right to emphasize femininity um but these weren't just and and i should say and and in other cases the players were doing more severe things like um opting out of weight training for example to try to uh, make sure that they didn't continue to build muscle mass. This was also, though, happening externally. These pressures were being put on them. So um, coaches actually policing a lot of that behavior. And and um, I, I describe in the book a story of um, one of the, the star players who, before a game, was um, sent back into the locker room to fix her hair because the coaches didn't feel like Her hair looked appropriate enough for what was going to be a televised game and so all these ways right um i talk about it as like cognitive resources being taken up by having to think about things like what does my hair look like right before you're about to do this sport where like you shouldn't really be thinking about that uh so i think there's some real consequences to that that you know we should pay attention to
1: yeah it's it's really it's a very interesting analysis and and you start the book with serena williams And I think, and Serena Williams is um, such a great story. So why did you decide to start your book with Serena?
0: There were a couple of reasons. I think the biggest one, I mean, in addition to being a a big fan, (laughs) and having the opportunity to, to, to write about her as it relates to my work, is that I think Serena Williams, unfortunately, is the best example of the big themes Of this book playing out uh, on a national, an international uh, scale uh, for all to see. For the entirety of her career, Serena Williams dealt with this sort of unending criticism of her her gender, specifically through her embodiment of, of masculinity, right? She was always too big, too muscular, too tough, too aggressive. Um, sort of any any way she looked, anything she did was scrutinized um, in ways that uh, I, I think we haven't seen. I mean, I think there are other examples of this and I talk about other athletes in the book, but I think she she really is unique in that way, the sort of uh, relentlessness of her, the criticism of her, uh, her gender. and then of course, um, her blackness. Um, so, so she, you know, she's a black woman in a sport that is predominantly white. Um, and so you see this interesting, uh, mix of race and gender operating to, uh, to police her and her experience. Um, so it's not just that she's muscular, it's that she's, she's in a muscular black body, right. And all of the associations that we have with, um, with blackness and, um, and masculinity kind of coalescing uh, in that moment. And so it was important for me, I think, to set the stage because I try to do that in the book. I try to talk about how these identities are interwoven. You actually cannot understand one without understanding the other. Um, And so it seems, uh, you know, pretty important for me to set the stage with her story.
1: Absolutely. And it's really well done. I think that, you know, I think that, um, again, I was remembering a lot of it But I, I think when you, you put it in such, um, uh, concise analysis, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that was really racist. That that is really awful at what she had to deal with and being in such a elite country club sport like tennis. um, Yeah. She really absorbed so much of that, um, and, and uh, it's really sad because of her, you know, it took so much attention away from her talent and her greatness as a, uh, why can't you just appreciate me for my tennis, right? It's all this other stuff that people, exactly. sports announcers talked about that really heartbreaking. And, you know, we didn't talk about Brittany Griner yet. And I'd really love for you to talk a little bit about Brittany Griner's story in, um, in the context of, of women in sports.
0: Yeah, so Brittany Griner, I think, much like Serena Williams, um, was uh, is very present throughout the book, and and that was really important to me because I think Brittany Griner, in much of the same ways, has experienced a lot of the same things Serena Williams has experienced. I think the difference is that uh, I, I would almost say it's it's perhaps more amplified or uh, qualitatively different because Brittany Griner's queer and. And she expresses gender non-normatively. And so not only has she experienced the sort of racialized policing of gender, um, but that's actually, I I think there's a degree to which it's been more, uh, more problematic because there have actually been people who question whether in fact she is a woman. So it's not just... Is she performing femininity incorrectly? It's that uh, are you in fact a man, right? So there's a there's a, sort of almost like a transphobic um, slant to to her experience. Um, so she she really is sort of at the intersection of gender, race, sexuality, and her experience. And I think the criticisms of her again, right? Uh, it's much like Serena, too big, too muscular, too masculine looking. Um, behaving in ways, so you know, she became, I think, uh, infamous in some ways for punching a player in college, right? So that kind of behavior, much like Serena, sort of throwing a racket, right, or any sort of expression of emotion, right, read read through a lens uh, of these identities, these intersecting identities, then shaped how she's been treated um, in the mainstream. I think what's been interesting about the comparison also between Serena and, and Brittany Griner is these critiques are coming, not just from, you know, we can expect people on Twitter are always going to have something to say, but when you have mainstream sports announcers, commentators, right. Um, doing things like this, I think we, we reached a level of, of for me, at least I'm like, what's going on here. Right. Um, and like you said, I think it's really, um, played a toll for, for Brittany Griner on, on her ability to just be, um, an incredible athlete in her sport, right? Of course, most recently, um, she had the uh, horrific experience of, of being arrested and, and detained in a, in a Russian prison, um, which I would say, uh, interestingly, people did call out the fact that um, her identities uh, not only likely shaped her arrest in particular and her experience, but also uh, there were a lot of people critiquing the the swiftness of a response and an attempt to get her out um as as a result of, of those identities as well. So if she if she were a different athlete, for example, would it have taken as long? Now of course we can't necessarily know that, but I think it's interesting questions that people are asking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, you know, and that's impossible, I guess, to answer this, but you know, you wonder why her. Why was she mm-hmm. the one that they detained, you know, yeah, uh, on those charges, and you know, there. I think that there's, you know, it's not an accident that she was the one that she's that was detained and um making a statement. I think you know the Russian government making a, a statement about it.
0: Yeah, I think I I think that's what a lot of people suspect as well, um, is that there was this opportunity to yeah to make a statement with her arrest in particular um and then a lot of people thought there was statements to be made about you know advocating for her release um so i i mentioned in the book uh in the preface, that um donald trump jr in response to her release uh made a comment something like uh biden was afraid that his his dei score would go down if uh if he didn't release her and and that's i think a specific response to paul whalen the um the the um, other person who had been in a, in a Russian prison who was not a part of that negotiation. So, um, yeah, it's a whole it's a whole other piece of this puzzle that, that we could talk about. But I think, uh, again, what that is, is, is we're seeing the effects of identity, uh, clashes of identity, right, playing out in these really uh, public ways.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating. And, you know, i teach women's history is women's history podcast. So I'm always interested in looking at these new books, and seeing how they're helpful for understanding women's history, how they connect to women's history. And so did you have any thoughts about how historically this fits into, you know, uh, history in, in writ large?
0: Absolutely. I mean, when I was first conceiving of this book, I was reading Women's sports history books. Right? Susan Kahn, for example, is you know her her work has been so influential to my thinking around this. And um, you know, I think something that uh, when I think about the context of women's history and where this book might fit in is, I think you know, in some ways, I think about how it's an example of all of the amazing progress that we've made, um, and we need to stop and acknowledge that i think that's really really important and it's easy i think when you're still navigating through inequities to to be like have we really you know what progress have we and, and we have right we have fundamentally uh women can and do uh play sports in in numbers that we have you know continue to increase that we've, we've never seen before and that's amazing um and at the same time i think something that even i was surprised by um, is the amount to which we are still grappling with some very basic um, issues in the contemporary moment that have been around for decades and decades, right? 70, 80 years right of, of women navigating some of these same tropes, uh, same stereotypes, same constraints around how they can be as athletes. Um, And as as women, frankly, in general, (laughs) I think we can extrapolate out to outside of sports. Um, And so, you know, I think for me, it's the book is in some ways an example of. uh, Like any social institution, right, we've had a lot of change and we have a long way to go. Absolutely. I love talking about women's history
1: and the sports, you know, as you know, talking about culture, we don't only want to talk about politics, but culture is such an important way that we see change happening and everything from starting with babe Didrikson and yeah. you know those the great swimmers like gertrude Ederly and diana nyad and the great yeah. tennis players like billie jean king and the soccer you know u.s women's soccer i love talking about it and students really connect to it and i i feel that it's a uh, just a vital way to understand society and understand women's history. Really important, and I, I think this book is going to change everybody's understanding of
0: women's sports. So I really hope everybody picks it up and takes a look at it. Thank you, thank you, Jane. Yeah, you know I, I you know you talked about Babe Didrikson. I mean, and and Billie Jean King and and Diana and Iad. Which uh, if folks haven't seen the the new Netflix movie, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I think they're such classic examples of, of some of the themes I'm talking about here. I mean, people were part of what I think was so, uh, embedded in, in Babe Didrikson's story was that people couldn't wrap their minds around a woman who was not only doing the kinds of things she was doing athletically, but who looked the way she looked, right? So um you know they would kind of call her freakish right and and um and i think i use that exact word when i was introing the book with serena williams story right this idea that women who uh embody again masculinity um through particularly muscle mass right um are seen as as anomalies right um and and yet those are the things that make you really good at sports. <laughs> so uh, it's this really interesting, there's a through line there for sure. Um, and and of course, it's racialized, uh, which is a lot of, of what I talk about. I try to bring that lens into into the work. but, um, yeah, we, we have a through line for sure. Oh, yeah, it's truly really
1: terrific. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining me on the show today. This book is gonna, Really, if you like sports and you like talking about women's history, you're really going to love this. The new book is called Denied Women, Sports and the Contradictions of Identity, published by New York University Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semecka. Keep reading.